I'd invite you to turn to Paul's letter to the Romans. We are picking up where we left off two Lord's Days ago, and we're looking this morning at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I know for many of you, you can't wait to get to Romans 9, and uh, I can't wait to get into Romans 9. As we go into Romans 9, into that part that you just can't wait to hear, um, I want to note that the introduction to this chapter serves as a segue from what Paul has just written to what he is going to say in the next three chapters. But one of the interesting things is that Paul doesn't, he doesn't tee up this transition. He doesn't give us any, any words or phrases that would let you know he has transitioned. But he has most certainly done. section of this book, if you, if you think back with me, if you've been here, this great letter and all the theological riches in it, Paul will say things like, what then shall we say to this? Or what then? Or now? Or therefore? And then he will go on with some further theological explanation of what he said. Paul does not do that here. Instead, what Paul does is he opens his heart to those to whom he's writing, and in opening his heart to them, he transitions to what is one of the more difficult portions of this book, and yet one that yields some of the greatest theological truths for our minds and hearts to latch onto. And so we're looking this morning at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Let me say this also by way of introduction that Paul has ended chapter 8 with those great words, what can separate us or who can separate us, who can bring a charge, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ, nothing, in all of the universe. Paul bears witness against the entire universe. He says, I am convinced that neither life nor death nor heaven nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor death nor any other created thing in all of the universe will ever be able to separate us from God's love in Christ. The greatest comfort and assurance for true believers. And he transitions very quickly. And there in Romans 9, 5, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I have a number of pet peeves. One of those is whenever someone starts a
honest, I'm going to tell you the truth, or I'm not going to lie to you. I'm like, all right, here it comes. Brace yourself. And I've noticed that people that say those sort of things tend to say them a whole lot, which makes me think they do lie a lot, and they are about to slide something under my door. I'm not going to, if I do that to you, correct me quickly, say, I thought you hated that. Not going to lie to you. And this morning, let me say this. I'm not going to lie to you. The Apostle Paul is doing something very different when the Apostle Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Now, that's a peculiar way for the Apostle to introduce what he is going to introduce. As I've already noted, the Apostle Paul is from the great truths of Romans 1 through 8. And now he is going to of Romans 9 through 11. Now, we have noted this to some extent in, in previous messages that, that in one sense, the apostle really ended his exposition that he began in Romans 1.16 at the end of chapter 8. You'll remember that great thesis statement. I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. That's the great thesis statement of this book. And the rest of Romans 1 through 8 is an unpacking of that thesis statement. It's Paul explaining what the gospel is, how it works, who it's for, what it does, what benefits come from it. And in a very real sense, he has ended... In chapter 8, verse 39, what he began back in chapter 1, verse 16. And so many theologians have wrestled with what to do, with what Paul sets up here. Some have said things like, this was an old sermon that Paul preached, and he's just putting it in there because he needs filler material. I'm going to go ahead and disabuse you of that idea. I don't think that's what Paul's doing. Paul never just tries to get filler like us when we're writing 40-page papers. He's not looking for filler material. Um, Other people will say, this is the apostle now talking about the the great election of the nation of Israel in chapter 9 through 11. He's not doing that either. Both of those would be wrong. What Paul is essentially doing is he's trying to answer the question that he has woven through chapter 1 through 8, has God's word failed if the better part of the Jewish people not believe the gospel? Has God's word failed? Notice you'll see that in verse 6. Paul says there in Romans 9, 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. So in chapters 9 through 11, that's the great question. Has God's word of promise failed because the better part of the Jewish people, of which Paul himself belonged, by nature, by birth, by heritage, the better part of the Jewish people had rejected the gospel. In fact, Paul is going to say in chapter 10 that the Jewish people are enemies of the gospel. He's going to make a very strong statement. There are strong statements through the the Jewish people were the ones, remember, who were dragging Paul out and mob lynching him. It was the Jewish people that were causing so many problems. It was the Jewish people in every city he went to throughout the book of Acts in the known world that were rejecting the gospel and showing incredible hostility. And that shouldn't be surprising to us 
because the Apostle Paul himself had been an extremely zealous, hostile Jewish person to the gospel when he was converted. And so Paul is doing something very interesting here at the outset of Romans 9. He is going to set up the answer to that question, why haven't the better part of the Jewish people believed? And he's going to find the answer in the fact that not all are elect, and he's going to go off on the doctrine of election, only those God has chosen from Jews and Gentiles are going to believe. But he doesn't go right there. Rather, he starts with this autobiographical opening of his heart and explaining the deep anguish and desire that he has to see his countrymen converted and brought to saving faith in Christ. Now, we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see the greatness of Paul's grief there in verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to consider the greatness of the covenant privileges that Old Covenant Israel had. And then we're going to consider the greatness of Christ, the greatness of Paul's grief, the greatness of the covenant privileges, and the greatness of Christ. We'll notice as Paul does go in and he sets it up with that, I am not lying. Notice he does something very interesting there in verse 1 as he is, he is trying to gain a hearing. What he's doing is he is trying to gain a hearing from people who have drawn the faulty conclusion that Paul hated the Jewish people and had no, no, no desire to see them come to know Christ. There were narratives that Paul was an enemy of Moses, that Paul was against the Jewish people, that Paul was against the synagogue. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see those accusations constantly resurfacing. This man hates the Jewish people. He hates the Jewish religion. He hates the law. He hates Moses. He's doing something altogether new. And, and what those who were raising those false accusations were forgetting was that Paul himself had been the most zealous Jew when he was converted. And in Philippians 3, you get an insight into that when Paul says, look, I was a Hebrew of a Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of a Pharisee. I was trained by Gamaliel. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. No one had a greater Jewish heritage than Paul. No one had more zeal for the Jewish cause than Paul. No one was a greater persecutor of those who opposed Judaism in its perverted form than Paul. And yet when he was converted, no one was more zealous for the truth of the gospel that God had given the Jewish people throughout the Old Covenant and throughout the Old Testament. No one was more zealous than Paul for the spread of the gospel. And yet notice that Paul introduces the grief that he has by trying to dispel the misunderstanding and the misrepresentation that Paul was anti-Semitic in his zeal for the gospel. Now, um, notice he does something very interesting there in verse 1. He first does a positive, and then he does a negative statement to drive this home. Paul is very good at giving things in the positive and then the negative. Notice this, positively, I am speaking the truth in Christ. Now, Paul is not doing what disturbs me so much when people say, I'm not going to lie to you. He's not saying that. He's saying, I am telling the truth in Christ. Paul adjures the name of Christ. 
He calls on the name of Christ. He essentially says, in my union with Jesus, in in the unique privilege I now know to be savingly united to Christ, and as one who speaks before Christ, in the presence of Christ, as a messenger of Christ, I am telling you that what's happening internally is the truth. And then Paul puts it negatively. Notice this, he says, I am not lying. Now, I think the apostle does that to clear the way for what he's going to do in talking about the grief and anguish that he knows internally, longing for the salvation of his countrymen. Notice this, Paul says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. You see, there was nothing external to Paul that made him write what he is about to write. There was nothing working on him from outside. It was all what was going on internal in him. And Paul understood that his own conscience was wired in such a way that he longed for the salvation of everyone, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, and that his desire for the salvation of his countrymen was no less strong than his desire for the salvation of the Gentiles. And Paul says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, for many of us, this probably sounds foreign because most professing believers have never had grief and anguish in their hearts over the unbelief of those that they care about and the fact that, that, that the better part of people are perishing. And, and most professing believers do not have grief and anguish in their hearts over that. The Apostle Paul did. Um, Listen to this, Eric Alexander reflecting on this. He says, there is no peril in all of God's universe like the peril of a lost soul. There is no danger that any man or woman can face than the appalling danger of being outside of Jesus Christ. Now let me, let me bring this home. The better part of people I know watch way too much news. Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, I don't care. Way too much news. And 99% of it is fear-driven so that you will be held captive into what if China does this? What if Russia does this? What if this happens? What if this peril happens? What if that peril happens? And, And so the better part of our conversation to take shape and form around the the perils that we see put in front of us, potential perils, through the news. And what the apostle says to us this morning is what Eric Alexander has noted. There is no greater peril than to be outside of Christ and to be perishing. Because Paul understands that the peril that his unbelieving countrymen were in no less than unbelieving Gentiles to whom he was sent to preach, is the peril of eternal perdition. You know, I was reflecting on this, and I thought about how worked up people get about social justice, how how that becomes the all-consuming thing. Paul had one 
all cons- that's two, one. Paul had one all-consuming thing, the salvation of Jews and Gentiles through the proclamation of the gospel and the urging of people to come to Christ. It's, it's fascinating. You know, here's where you really see how great Paul's grief and anguish is. Paul puts these verses at the head of the greatest section in scripture about the free and unmerited election of God. So Paul knows that only those that God has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1-3, are going to come to saving faith in Christ. He knows that. He's assured of that. He's comforted by that. He has hope in that. His ministry is fueled by that. And the apostle who knows that all that the Father has chosen in the Son and given to the Son are going to trust in the Son, that apostle has unending grief in his heart over his countrymen who are perishing. That's amazing. At the head of the greatest chapter on the doctrine of election in Scripture, of which Paul draws off of Moses and the Old Testament, and of course Christ talked about God's electing purposes incessantly, but at the, greatest, at the head of the greatest chapter, greatest section, Paul says, I have unending grief for the salvation of my countrymen. Now, I think there, the electing purposes of God and the evangelizing purposes of God are seen to work together very gloriously. But what Paul does here is he really gives an insight into what's going on inside him. You know, this is really a remarkable passage because Paul has been the singular object of the hatred of his countrymen. I don't want you to miss this this morning. Paul has been the singular object of the ferocity and the hatred of his countrymen. Everywhere he went, the Jews are dragging him out, stoning him, beating him, forbidding him not to speak in Christ's name everywhere. And yet Paul says, my heart is burdened for these people. Now, there's a word there for us. When we look at the wickedness of the unbelieving world, we can see that we are by Salvation of those in it, practicing those things. Listen to this. Charles Spurgeon said, let other men's sins grieve you. Let other men's sins grieve you. Let their eternal destiny be often on your mind. Listen to this. Spurgeon said, you will labor for their good in proportion as you feel for them. That's what Paul's saying. You will labor for their good as often in proportion to as often as you feel for them. Spurgeon said, I cannot ask a better thing for the unconverted than that the converted may be in heaviness over them. Now, I ask you this morning, when was the last time, and I had to ask myself this question, it's not an easy question to answer, because you're going to want to answer it by saying, I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to lie to you. When was the last time you were burdened, really burdened in your heart, not, not trying to check off an evangelism thing to feel faithful, not giving money to evangelism to feel like you're making up for a deficiency, 
When was the last time we had a burdened heart for the lost? Even for our lost loved ones. Um, My dad is a great man who had a lot of faults. But one of the great things about my dad is that he was constantly burdened for the salvation of his parents, my mom's siblings, our cousins, constantly in our home praying, constantly laboring to try to get the gospel to those in our family who so vehemently rejected that gospel. Um, My grandfather was foremost among those who rejected the gospel. I remember as a very little boy, my sister and I were in the back of his 77 Malibu. I know I'm getting old. And, um, and somehow we were, we were talking about Jesus. And my grandfather said, I don't want to hear you talk about that name ever again in front of me. I was probably four or five years old. On his deathbed, my dad pled with him, pled with him to trust in Christ. And my grandfather said, he's my savior. Now, I don't know where my grandfather is. But the example of my dad is one that every true Christian would be good to imbibe in his and her experience. God has placed us in particular circumstances around particular people in particular homes. And he has put us there so that we who know Christ would have a burden, especially to bring the gospel to those closest to us. Um, It's sort of the principle of Augustine's moral proximity. We can't, we can't solve all the problems of the world out there, but we can deal judiciously and purposefully with those closest to us. Paul feel, feels that. Paul was a man, by the way, that felt deeply. You know, when Paul went into Athens in Acts 17, um, Luke writes this. Listen to this, Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul was waiting At Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he preached the gospel. When was the last time our hearts were provoked within us when we saw all the idolatry happening? I've seen people bow down to idols once. I was at the Notre Dame. I was 24 years old. I had never seen people bowing down and worshiping literal physical idols. And I remember walking out feeling deeply disturbed And then contrasting that experience with the desensitization that happens to us over decades, Paul never lost that sensitivity to the lostness of the world around him. He never lost a burden for the salvation of those around him. We are so desensitized in a pluralistic society that Judgment Day is going to be a horrible wake-up call for everybody. We should have soft and spiritually sensitive hearts for those around us who do not know Christ, who are worshiping idols, and who are perishing, just like we were when someone brought the gospel to us. Now, notice Paul's intensity moves into the great statement that he makes in verse 3. Notice this. And you have to look very carefully at the way he words this. Paul says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I could wish that I were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, 
my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now let me say this this morning. Paul is not saying, I want to be unconverted and perish so that they can be converted and be saved. He's not saying that. And by the way, if you read commentaries on this verse and this chapter, they are as confusing as commentaries on the book of Revelation. So maybe don't do that. What Paul is doing is he's raising a hypothetical. Paul's raising a hypothetical. What he's saying is, if it were possible for this arrangement to be enacted, if that were within the realm of possibility, then I wish I could be cut off so that they could be saved. That's the anguish and the grief that Paul has, the longing he has for the salvation of his countrymen, the Jewish people. In the midst of all their hatred, all their persecution of him, all their opposition of him, Paul says, I could wish, insert in there, if possible, I would be accursed. Now, this is really an intense heart of love. This is an intense heart of love. Paul is essentially putting himself um, in a place that mirrors what Christ has done for his people. You have to listen very carefully. It was the Lord Jesus who put himself in the place of us to redeem us on the cross. It was the Lord Jesus who allowed himself to be made a curse, Paul says, so that we might be blessed. It's by his stripes that we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace, Isaiah said, was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The apostle says he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us in our place. He substituted himself. And Paul is following the logic of the gospel. Paul is saying the Lord Jesus Jesus substituted himself for me. The Lord Jesus was accursed for me. The Lord Jesus was made anathema for me. And if it were possible, I would do the same for the salvation of my countrymen. Listen very carefully. John Murray put this so well. He said the intensity of the apostle's love for his own people is in this disclosed. It is love patterned after the love of the Savior who has made a curse and sin for the redemption of men. It is love patterned after the love of the Savior. If, if I take an inventory check of how much grief and anguish I have in my heart for those uh, in my immediate family who are perishing, for those that I know in the community that are perishing, and out from there. And I realize that my heart is not filled with the same measure of grief and anguish as that of the Apostle Paul, then I have in some way and to some measure lost sight of the greatness of what Christ has done for me. Because this is not something that is summoned up by an evangelistic campaign in a local church. It's not something that's motivated by seeing other people do evangelism. It's something that takes root in our heart when we really understand who we are and what Christ did for us when we were enemies. Because the biblical all enemies. 
that we were all lost, that we were all perishing, that we were all under the wrath and curse of God, that we were all anathema per se, and Jesus came and stood in our place and did for us what only he could do, and it was all motivated by the love that he had for us. And that if I by the love that he had for me, then I will have love for others, even others, and sometimes especially others, who are my enemies for the sake of the gospel. See, Paul doesn't see any tension between knowing that God was judging the Jewish nation, that Christ had taken the lampstand away, and that the Lord Jesus called them a synagogue of Satan in Revelation 2, with the heart of love that he had longing for their salvation. Paul doesn't see a tension there. Paul feels deeply for the Paul understood what he was by nature, a persecuting, zealous, self-righteous, Pharisaic Jew. And Christ had mercy on him. And Paul was driven by that same model of mercy in carrying that gospel to others. Well, secondly... I want us to consider the greatness of the covenant privileges of Old Covenant Israel. Now, Paul has talked about the greatness of his grief leading to his witness, and now he he tees up for us more understanding about what's motivating that. What what motivates Paul's heart? What, What compels him forward? Well, notice what he says. He sets out a litany of privileges that Old Covenant Israel had In verses 4 and 5, notice this. He says, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Now, Paul has given us another list just like this list back in chapter 3. Turn back to chapter 3. And as he's answering the question, what, what is the value of circumcision... If and, and what, what value do the Jews have if they're self-righteous and they don't believe and they've rejected Christ and they've rejected the gospel? Notice this. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. He says, to, to begin with, the Jews were given the oracles of God, the word of God. So that's, that's the big privilege. In the Old Testament, God gave his word to one people and really only one people. To theocratic Israel in the Old Covenant. Um, He gave them, Paul will expound expound on this here in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. He gave them the covenants. Remember, he, he made covenant promises to Abraham. He made covenant promises to Moses. He made covenant promises to David. Those were all sequestered within the realm of Old Covenant Israel. Uh, They were given the worship. They were given the temple. They were given the sacrificial system. They were given the priesthood. They were given all the Old Testament typical things that played into their worship. Paul says they were given the promises. Every single promise that you find in the Old Testament was first and foremost given to Israel. Now it's going to be for Jews and Gentiles in the New Covenant, but Paul is reflecting on in redemptive history on those privileges God had given to the nation of Israel and the people belonging to ethnic Israel. Notice 
He says to them belongs the adoption. Israel had a national adoption, a typical adoption. God brought Israel out of Egypt. He said to Pharaoh, let my son go. The whole nation was typically the son of God, pointing to the son of God who came to redeem his people. But in the Old Testament, no one had the privileges, the religious privileges that Israel had. They had the adoption, they had the covenants, they had the giving of the law at Sinai, they had the worship, and they had the promises. There was not one thing that God withheld from old covenant Israel that should have brought them to saving faith in Christ. He gave them every single spiritual privilege. And and all of those things were meant to show them their need for Christ because all of those things pointed to the coming Redeemer. Notice Paul gives us one more really big privilege that Israel had. Notice verse 5, he says, To them belonged the patriarchs, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Jesus came as the last man of Israel. Jesus is the last man of Israel. He is the true son of Abraham. All the promises of God that were given to Israel from Abraham on were passed down to the last man of Israel, the Lord Jesus. He was fully Israelite. He was born under the law. He was circumcised. He kept that law perfectly. He lived as a perfect Israelite. By the way, this is just another reason we shouldn't have images of Jesus. Because everyone wants to make Jesus in their own ethnic image because they are ethnic-centric. Jesus was an Israelite. He was not black, and he certainly was not a Victorian, European-looking white dude that can't save anybody, which is how most pictures depict him. He was the son of Abraham. He He was an Israelite. And then notice what Paul says in verse 5. He is God over all, blessed forever. I want to come back to that verse in just a second. What I want us to understand here is that Paul's burden for the salvation of the Jewish people was based on God's previous work of giving covenant privileges to them through that part of redemptive history until Christ came. Paul's burden was to see God fulfilling the promises he had made to the people he had given so many privileges to. Now, there is a word there for us. If you have grown up in the church, as I grew up in the church, you have massive privileges. We saw one of our covenant children baptized this morning. That's a privilege. We have We have the worship of God. We have the gospel. We have the sacraments. We have all of these privileges, and it is altogether possible. You've got to listen very carefully, because I did this for a long time until the Lord saved me and had mercy on me. It is is very possible to take all of those privileges and do absolutely nothing with them. Israel of old took those privileges and persecuted the messengers of the one to whom all those things pointed. It is possible to sit in church every Sunday of your life and not know Christ. It is possible to sit under the preaching of the gospel, to come to the Lord's table, to be in the fellowship, to speak the talk, to talk the talk, 
to play the part and not to know the Lord Jesus. It was true for the better part of Old Covenant Israel, and it can be true today. But Paul's burden was to see his countrymen improve upon those privileges by coming to the one they pointed to. That's what motivated him in his longing for the salvation of his countrymen. Well, I want us to consider not just the greatness of Paul's grief or the greatness of the covenant privileges to old covenant Israel. I want us to focus on the greatness of Christ. Notice what Paul does here. It's magnificent. As he is enumerating the privileges that Israel had, as he is saying Israel had all of these things in redemptive history, he ends that list by saying there was one privilege above all the other privileges, and that is that Christ came from them as the son of David, as the son of Abraham, fully man, fully Israelite, but that he is also God over all. Um, I have served on theological examination committees in four or five presbyteries over 16 years. Um, And there's a question we always ask every candidate coming for care. Every, Every young man wanting to go into gospel ministry, we say, Tell us where you would take someone in scripture to prove the deity of Christ. And almost without hesitation, somebody will rattle off John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Or many will go over to Colossians, and they will go over to Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2 where it says that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Some of them will go to Hebrews chapter 1 where it says that Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his substance, that he upholds all things by the word of his power, and that when he by himself made purification for our sins, sat down at the right hand of God. And there are many other places where the, the untarnished deity of Jesus is set forth in Scripture. But Romans 9.5 has been called the strongest evidence for the deity of the Son in Scripture, and it just so happens to be the most overlooked in all of the New Testament. I want you to Note this, mark it, underline it, write it down, memorize it, meditate on it, whatever you have to do to learn this. Paul says the Israelites had all these privileges, the greatest of which is that Christ came as an Israelite, but greater than that is that he is the God of Israel over all. He is fully God, and he is fully man. In one person, he is God-blessed forever. And if that doesn't jump out and tell you that Jesus is God in everything that makes God God, there is nothing that will open your eyes to that. The apostle says that the Lord Jesus is the eternal God and that according to the flesh, the eternal son came as Christ to the Israelites so that he might bless the nations in him, with the gospel. Now, there is a sobering word here because what Paul is essentially saying is that 
Christ, the same Christ we're worshiping this morning, right now, if you're worshiping, the same Christ that we're worshiping this morning, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, the one who gives you life and breath in all things, the one who atoned for every sin of everyone the Father gave him, that Christ was given to old covenant Israel and they rejected him. He was given to them in the types and the shadows. He is the serpent on the pole. Whoever looks to the sun lifted up will be saved. He is the water from the rock. When Christ is struck on the cross, the water of the Holy Spirit flows out. Every single type in the wilderness pointed to him. The Passover pointed to him. Circumcision pointed to the blood he would shed on the cross. Every single thing, the high priest pointed to him. The Passover lamb pointed to him. Every sacrifice in Israel pointed to him. Every promise pointed to him. Every wisdom principle in scripture finds its yes and amen in him. Every single part of the Old Testament is about the Lord Jesus. He was given to the Israelites and they did not believe in him. And that ought to mean that when I think about my place in the New Covenant Church, as a Gentile who has been engrafted in, who once was a stranger to the covenants of promise, but now have been brought near by the blood of Christ, once who were foreigners and aliens, but now have been made fellow citizens and saints with the members of the household of God, once without hope, but now built together stone upon stone as a living temple in which God dwells by the Spirit, number one, I ought to be supremely grateful. What I'm going to say this morning is the most important thing you'll ever hear, and I will go to my grave saying that. You should be supremely grateful if you have had your eyes open to see the Lord Jesus and your need for him. Because, as Eric Alexander said, there is nothing, there is no peril in all of God's universe like the peril of a lost soul. And we can have all the privileges and not see the one to whom they point. I want to say this this morning, if you've never had the eyes of your heart open to see the Lord Jesus, I would encourage you to cry out to him. Say, Lord, have mercy on me. You know what happens at the end of this section in which the apostle will talk about only will come and trust in Christ. At the end of that, Paul cites, Paul cites that great statement, whoever believes on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, um, if you have grown up in church your whole life, but you've never come to faith in Christ, then, then you are in the most feasible situation. Um, it will be worse, Jesus said, for all those who have had greater light greater privileges, heard more truth, seen more things, heard about Christ more if they never come to him than those that have never heard. And Paul understood that about his own people. And so his response was, I am burdened for them. I wish I could substitute myself for them. I wish I could be anathema for their salvation. I want to encourage you this morning, if you are a believer... That and, and I want to encourage us to be praying that the Lord would fill our hearts with such a burden for the lost. 
and especially those that have grown up in the church and have re rejected the faith. By the way, deconversion, that's a popular word right now. It's, in the Bible, that's, that's the idea of apostasy. That's the worst thing someone could do. Um, and and don't, don't go on Instagram and listen to those people. They don't care about you one iota. They don't care about your soul. They don't care about your eternal condition. Only one like the Apostle Paul who says, I have unending grief and anguish in my heart for the salvation of my countrymen. And so let's be praying, those of you that are trusting in Christ and have seen your need for him, let's be praying that the Lord will give us such a burden for the lost. Again, I want to note this morning that Paul's going to go on in the rest of this chapter and give the greatest exposition of why some believe and others don't, and it's all going to be rooted in God's electing purposes but don't miss that he leads off this chapter with the greatest demonstration of what an evangelist heart looks like so that we would follow his example, that we would long for others to know the Christ who was born of the seed of Abraham and yet who is God over all, blessed forever. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for the truth of your word, and we thank you for this portion of scripture. Lord, we praise you for the work that you did in the Apostle Paul in bringing him out of his persecuting zeal, his persecuting rejection of the gospel, and in the great work that you did in making him into the great apostle for Christ to the Gentiles. We thank you also, our God, that you have given us a sight into the grief and the anguish that filled his heart over his desire to see his countrymen brought to saving faith. Our Father, would you give us such grief and anguish of heart for those that are perishing? Would you give us a longing to carry the gospel to our loved ones, our relatives, our co-workers, our neighbors, and those that you have placed around us? Lord, would you remove from us desensitivity to the unbelief and the idolatry of so many in our culture. And would you give us a longing to see others come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus? Would you do this in us, even as you did it in the Apostle Paul? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.